Well, good morning. How many of you are pretty excited after seeing that? Anybody? We're excited to get now. Some of you have no idea why anyone's clapping because it has been four years since we've been able to do Sunday in the Park. I'm not going to get into all the details this morning, but you can find them in your bulletin um, and just circle the date in your calendar. Make sure you're there. It is a special time of worship for us together as a church. My name is Tom Daly. I'm an elder here at LAFC, and today we're going to be getting back into the book of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Luke 19 right now. And if you don't have one, the ushers will be happy to provide one for you. And while they're coming down, I want to ask anyone, this is not going to work with the ushers, I'm sorry, uh, anyone who has a technical science engineering background to just raise your hand. All right, these people don't need Bibles. They're just saying they love math. They love science. All right, thank you. So you guys are my people. Um, I have an engineering background myself, so maybe you can help me out here as I, as I ask this question. This is a question for everybody. If I were to ask one of you to take a bowling ball and to stand in the back of this center aisle here and roll it down as hard as you can down the center aisle, and then I were to come down here and take this ping pong ball and roll it towards that bowling ball at the same velocity, which one of those two objects would change its course? The, the ping pong ball, right? Okay, you guys, I heard at least some chuckles here. The first service was silent. They had no idea. As all I can assume, they, they don't have a basic understanding of physics. Um, but So you'll be more prepared to, to go into what we're going to discuss today because when I think about the series we're in, this is the imagery that comes to mind for me. I think about, the, we're, in this series, we're talking about the story of Jesus and our story. And so when we think of the story of Jesus, what comes to mind is one who is almighty, all-powerful and on a mission from eternity to eternity, and he cannot be stopped. And we are more like this ping-pong ball, right? Okay, some of you are laughing because you know that when you've had an interaction with Christ, when, you're, when your story collides with him, depending on the path you are on will depend on what happens with that, right? So if you're moving the same direction that Christ is in and your stories collide, man, you can see him move in your life with power. But if you happen to be on a different path than he's on and you collide with him, he can redirect. And those redirections can be kind of painful. So I had one of these experiences with Christ about 15 years ago. And uh, so 15 years ago, just to give you a little bit of understanding of where I was at, I was in college um, studying for engineering, and I had high aspirations for my career. And so I was focused, laser-focused on studying engineering. And to be honest, it went further than that. I found a lot of my self-worth and my identity in my achievement. Now, in the summer between my sophomore and my junior year, one of my, uh, my friends, which most of my friends were study friends, so a fellow engineer, I got a call from one of my friends while I was on an engineering internship to inform me that the night before, one of our mutual friends, a good friend of mine, had died in a tragic accident. And as I thought through our interactions over those prior two years, it occurred to me that I could not tell you, from a first, at least not from a first-hand account, what he believed. And I don't think he could have told you what I believe because at that point in my life, my focus was on achievement. But what I'm really saying is that my focus was on myself. My first love was myself and others came second. Tim Keller says this. He says, what makes people into what they are is the order of their loves. What they love most, more, less, and least. 
And today, what we're gonna be looking at is how coming into the presence of Jesus, being exposed to his glory and grace can transform our lives and reorder our loves. And we're gonna be doing that by looking at the story of a person who is primarily known for their looks. Now, this person is not beautiful like Esther or Sarah or Rachel. He is not tall like King Saul. This person is not, um, have, does not have handsome eyes like King David, but they're primarily known for being short. So I see some kids in the room. Kids, which wee little man do you think that we are talking about today? I see some of you lipping it to me. Zacchaeus, yeah, we're talking about Zacchaeus this morning. But just so we can show together that we believe that this is more than just a children's story, what I'm gonna ask you to do is stand with me while I read to us from Luke 19, verses one to 10. So you can go ahead and stand now, and I'll read. This is Luke 19, starting in verse one. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give away half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will repay four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Stay standing with me as I open us up in prayer here. Lord God, we are here this morning and we, we long to be true followers of you. And so I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make these words into living words that would speak into our hearts and that you would teach us here this morning by your power. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So all of the gospel writers, we're in Luke, all of the gospel writers wrote their gospels with a purpose. And the reason for this is John clarifies in the very last verse of his gospel, which says that if they were to have written down all the things that Jesus has done, the world could not contain the books that would be written. So being you know, technically, math, mathematically mind, I'm like, all right, well, I want to see how many books are being written about Jesus right now. So I pulled up Amazon, and I started to do a search for a few different things. So I looked up Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And for the, in the last 30 days, what I found is that for Abraham Lincoln, there have been 127 new releases about him. And for George Washington, there has been 131 new releases about him. What I also found, though, is in just the last 30 days there have been over 6,000 new releases about Jesus when you search for him, right? The, the, we just, I guess with Kindles, we sort of can contain all the books now, but John didn't have that in mind. So um, the world cannot contain all that can be said about Jesus. So when we approach the gospels, we have to be asking ourselves, which specific aspects of the life of Jesus did each gospel writer through the Holy Spirit intend to convey to us? 
to help give us some grounding to understand what's going on and what they're communicating. And Luke actually tells us where, what his motive is in the very beginning of his book, like most of the gospel writers do. His is in the beginning, in chapter 1, verse 4. And he says this. In chapter 1, verse 4, Luke says that he is written so that we may, ha- we, that we may know with certainty the things that we have been taught. Okay, and this makes sense because Luke himself, you may know, was one who was taught. He was not an eyewitness. He was not an apostle. Everything that he knew about the gospel came from someone else. And so now he's writing um, from, from our perspective as one who was taught so that we can know the certainty of the things we have been taught and not have doubt. And at the end of the passage we just read, he clarifies what he's trying to encourage us with today, which is who Christ is and the mission he was on, which is summarized in that powerful last statement that says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So that's the direction we're going to head this morning. We're just going to follow along with the text. But in order to ground us a little bit in what's going on here, I just want to take a few moments to introduce you to the two main characters at this point in the gospel, one being Jesus and one being Zacchaeus. So I'm just going to explain a little bit as to what's going on in their lives for context. So first, in the life of Jesus, we are about a week out from his crucifixion, probably a few days from the triumphal entry, which we're going to celebrate next weekend as Palm Sunday. And he is on a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem for the annual pilgrimage to, uh, to celebrate Passover. So there's going to be a map on the screen here that shows the various ways that people typically try to, or t- people typically pilgrim from, uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, and you're going to see that the path follows down the Jordan River through Jericho and then up to Jerusalem. And so our story is taking place when he's almost at the very end of that journey. He is currently passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. But there is more going on at this part of the story than just the pilgrimage that has happened every year in Israel for hundreds of years. You see, Jesus has made it clear to his followers and anyone around him that he is going to Jerusalem this time for a purpose. The most recent of these is back just one page from the text that we read today. It's in Luke 18, verse 31. And Jesus is sharing this with his disciples. He says in verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Everything will be fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but I typically try to under-promise so that I can over-deliver, right? Like set expectations so you don't disappoint people. But Jesus has no reason to set expectations because everything that he promises, we know he delivers. And he's saying that every prophecy that was written about the Son of Man is about to be fulfilled. And the people around him knew this. So there is an excitement building as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. You see, they believe that he is the prophesied Messiah. Except in their mind and their understanding of prophecy, what they think he's going to Jerusalem for is to become the prophesied political king and begin his earthly rule and reign. 
The, uh, Mark, another gospel writer, captures the same interaction I just read to you, but from a slightly different perspective. He adds a little bit more. In Mark 10.32, he says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, and those that followed were afraid. They thought their king was leading them. Their king from the line of David was leading them to their holy capital, the city of David, where he would begin his rule. So this is where we're at in the story of Jesus and in the minds of the people who are around him at this point. Now in Jericho, we meet our other character here, which is Zacchaeus. And let me just help you understand where, where his background is and where he's coming from. So it describes Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector, which in those days, the tax collectors were people who voluntarily worked for Rome on behalf of Rome to collect taxes from Israel. And it says that he was a chief tax collector, meaning that he likely had many common tax collectors like Matthew working under him where he had a more direct relationship with Rome. Now, whether you were a common tax collector or a chief tax collector, this profession had the ability to make you very wealthy. And you didn't even have to take advantage of people. It was a very well-paying job. And so we know Zacchaeus was very wealthy. Now, from his countrymen's perspective, his peers in Israel, voluntarily working for Rome is no small thing. You see, Rome is an oppressor of Israel. These taxes were part of that oppression. And in their mind, Rome is in the same category of a long history of other countries that have oppressed Rome or oppressed um, Israel from the outside. So I'm thinking countries like Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. Rome is just another one in that lineage. And so with the triumphal entry just right around the corner, you know, one of the things that the, that the people are going to be celebrating as they think their king has arrived is that he may be liberating them, or he will be liberating them from people like Zacchaeus because he's come to liberate them from Rome based on their understanding. Now, one way, this, because of his tight relationship with Rome, this makes him very hated. And a way that we might be able to grasp this is just to consider for a moment living in a country that is being ruled by a hostile outside power that has military superiority over you. And I think there's at least a few situations that come to mind now. Now imagine, imagine with me, if you would, living in that country and knowing that one of your neighbors, someone who knew your family, your friends, your church, decided that for money, they were going to work as an informant for that outside power. I mean, this guy is not getting invited to any barbecues. I can tell you that. He was hated by his people because they associated him with Rome. And we don't know what made tax collectors or Zacchaeus specifically pursue this career. I think we could, wealth was certainly a reason. It could be power. It could be some kind of form of respect. But for whatever reason, Zacchaeus has traded away nearly everything else in pursuit of what that is. So in this story, these two guys, they meet. Let me read verse 3, chapter 18, starting in verse 3. Or chapter 19, I'm sorry, starting in verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. 
So here you have Zacchaeus, who is, I don't know if you guys have tried to climb a tree recently. If you're over the age of maybe like 25, I doubt anyone has attempted this. Um, it's not the most dignified activity I can share with you. Um, so, but he is willing to trade away whatever dignity he has left to climb this tree just to see who Zacchaeus or see who Jesus is. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is why? Why is it that Zacchaeus would do this? And I'm going to give you at least two possible reasons that Zacchaeus would do this. One is that I think he may have heard stories of Jesus's power. You see, Jesus has been doing amazing ministry for three years. He has, uh, he has allowed the lame to walk. He has raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And if you hadn't heard any of that, he literally healed a blind guy on his way into Jericho that morning. All right? So everyone knew stories of his power. We find out later that even prominent people like Herod have heard of Jesus and were excited to meet him. It could be that. It could also be stories of his character. So consider the position Zacchaeus is in, the hopelessness that he would find himself in, knowing that he has traded away his reputation, uh, he's traded away his good name, his relationships, in exchange for probably money, which we all know does not provide satisfaction in the end. And then hearing that there is someone who understands the position that he finds himself in. If you put yourself in his shoes for a moment and just think about, have you ever found yourself living a life that you never set out to have and unable to fix it? And then you, you hear about a guy who has loved people in your position. Not only that, he has used tax collectors as a hero in some of his stories. And even more so, one of his inner circle, one of his closest 12, was a tax collector. Just think about the hope that that might bring you. Someone who's trapped in a life knowing that this man brings hope and love and in some cases freedom and transformation to people exactly like you. could be stories of his power. It could be stories of his character and the hope that he brings. We're not sure what it is, but these are two things that God has used for a, since the beginning of time to draw people to himself. Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. These are aspects of the invisible God that draw people to himself. How much more when the God who is invisible became visible in the person of Jesus Christ, who is now in the flesh, showing God's power and his character in a way that can be seen and touched. Of course, this would draw us in. This was amazing. And today, we have more. We have creation, which is what it's talking about in Romans 1.20, the testimony of creation. More than that, we have this book, a recorded testimony from God of all that he's been doing since creation through the time of Moses and the prophets and culminating in the life of his son. And we also, those of us who follow Christ, in us we have the Holy Spirit 
The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us and through us shows his power and his nature as he works through us in our lives and the lives of the people around us. What does Jesus tell his disciples in Acts 1.8? Let me read this for you. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I know we've all, some of us have read this before and we love to teach the geography portion of this, but I don't want you to miss what it's saying about what it means to bear witness. Bearing witness about who Jesus is is much more than telling stories about our favorite TV show or what we were doing this past weekend. What it says here is that telling stories about Jesus, bearing witness to who Jesus is, is actually a Holy Spirit empowered act. Do you guys see that in there? It's not the only place we find it. Jesus. Paul, Luke, John, they all tell us that the Holy Spirit is one who testifies. And so when we testify in the Spirit, for us, it becomes a spiritual act. And this is some of the theology behind why Tony shared last week that we want to be a 1 Thessalonians 2.8 church which says this, it says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We wanna be a church that is regularly sharing testimony from this book, but also testimony of what God is doing through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love how Jackie Hill Perry really drives this point about telling stories home. She says, what God has done to my soul is worth telling because he is worth knowing. For my telling is, as I said before, my praise. To tell you about what God has done for my soul is to invite you into my worship. This is a spiritual act of worship. Telling stories about his power and nature should always be on our lips. Now, if you're in a life group, and I hope you are, This is a reason why we want to encourage you to be sharing stories regularly of the testimony of who God is and what he's doing in your life. And you know what? Your kids, especially if your kids are teenagers, they should know the stories of God in your life. And actually, even your friend's kids should know your story and your kids should know your friend's story because sharing witness about who God is is one way we can equip them in their faith. Let me read this from Psalm 78. It says that they would put, I'm sorry, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord so that they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. I see the power of sharing stories of what God has done. I think this is one way that we can honor the commitment that we all make when we dedicate kids, kids here at LAFC. We can build them up in their faith so that when they leave our homes and they face temptations like deconstruction, they will be equipped with the testimony of who God is from this book, but also from our firsthand accounts of what he has done by the Holy Spirit. And as we bear witness about what God has done and what he is still doing in our lives, God can use this to draw people to himself like he did for Zacchaeus. But I also want you to know that this is actually where our role ends. See what happens here next. After, we ha- after 
Zacchaeus has been brought up into the tree. Jesus comes that way. And in that moment, the witnessing of others stops and the Messiah shows up in Zacchaeus' life. Look back with me at Luke 19.5. Zacchaeus is in the tree and, and Jesus makes it to that spot. Now, by what we know about the way the sycamore fig tree grows, he's probably not that high up. He's probably about 10 feet off the ground. And so Jesus looks up. He's not that far away. And what is his first word that he says to Zacchaeus when he reaches that spot? Do you guys catch it? Zacchaeus. He says his name. Now, we don't know how Jesus knew his name in that moment. We could get into the doctrine of his human nature and divine nature, but that's a much bigger topic that we can't cover today. But what this does tell us is that Jesus knew who he was talking to. In saying the name of Zacchaeus, what he is saying is that, Zacchaeus, I know your reputation. I know your history. I know what you have been struggling with. I know how you have hurt others and how you have been hurt by others. How would you feel to be up in the tree? With the eyes of the Messiah on you, I am sure Zacchaeus did not expect Jesus to stop. And then he speaks our name and he says, I know your history and your reputation, the things that you have done or the things that you are still doing. I know your limitations, I know your physical ailments, I know how you have disappointed and wronged and hurt those you love. And I know how you have been disappointed and wronged and wounded by those you love. He also knows what we're thinking. He knows the soundtrack that's running in our, in our mind right now. That's saying, you know, what we talk about here in the morning, it's, it's for somebody else. It might be for somebody else, but it's not for me. He knows that too. And in saying the name of Zacchaeus and saying our name when he meets us, he's reminding us of words that he spoke hundreds of years before when he said this in Psalm 139, verse 1, that he searched us and he knows us. In Isaiah 43, verse 1, that says, I have summoned you by name. Now, for some of us, that's not great news, that yet another person knows the extent of our disappointments and our shame that they know all the ways we don't measure up, even the things that we have tried to hide from everyone else. But watch what happens next in verse five. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So what's happening here? Well, from the crowd's perspective, it looks like the Messiah has gone totally off mission, okay? His face was set like a flint towards Jerusalem. His followers knew it. His disciples knew it. And Jesus himself knew that his last week on earth was approaching. And now he's going to burn maybe half a day or a day at this guy's house. This guy who he's never met and pretty much everybody hates. If you knew you had one week left to live, who would you be spending your time with? Those closest to you? Or someone like Zacchaeus that you never met? But there's something bigger going on here. In, in going to the home of Zacchaeus, what he is doing 
is he is making a declaration that in his eyes, Zacchaeus has worth. In fact, he has so much worth that the, that the Messiah that has been prophesied for hundreds of years is going to spend one of his last days on earth with him. And he's also saying, Zacchaeus, who's just been up in the tree, that everything that has happened in the story of Zacchaeus to that moment doesn't matter. That it's only the story of Jesus that matters at that time. And this is what happens when a bowling ball meets a ping pong ball, right? It doesn't matter where that ping pong ball is coming from. It doesn't matter where it's going. It doesn't matter how fast it's moving there. When we meet Jesus, it is only his life and his story that matters. And when Jesus enters our story, things can begin to move quickly. Look here what it says in verse 6. It says, so Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And I think what we're seeing here is a reaction to the good news. That he's realizing, my story doesn't matter. Jesus is coming to my house. I did not have to earn this relationship. Jesus has invited me into relationship with him. And so he welcomes him in. Skipping down to verse 9, it says, Jesus said to him, and just to clarify, when it says Jesus said to him in verse 9, it's really saying Jesus said concerning him, meaning that he is talking to Zacchaeus, but he's also talking to everyone who is around. Jesus said concerning him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. So Jesus here is declaring openly what the invisible hand of God has been working for a very long time. That not, not necessarily that Zacchaeus is a Jew. He is a Jew, but when he says son of Abraham, he's not talking about lineage here. Jesus, when he says son of Abraham, or when he calls us daughter of Abraham, like he does in Luke 13, 16, the meaning is found in passages like Romans 4, which says that the real children of Abraham are the children who possess saving faith. Or even more clearly, in Galatians 2, 3, 29, which says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. In that moment, he is replacing all of Zacchaeus' shame with dignity. Where the crowd had said that he was a sinner, which is perhaps the worst insult that they could lodge at someone in that time. Jesus calls him child of Abraham, which is about the highest praise you can give someone in that time. You see, Jesus is proclaiming a new identity for Zacchaeus that silences the accusations of the crowd. And more than that, it silences the accusations of our chief accuser in the spiritual realm, Satan, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He is declaring to all natural and spiritual authorities that this sinner is now his. He's saying, this sinner is mine. This lost sheep is mine. This lost coin is mine, and nobody, natural or spiritual, can snatch him out of my hand. And he's saying that the name Zacchaeus no longer means sinner, but child of Abraham. And look, this is not accomplished by anything Zacchaeus has done. If you look back up at verse 8 where he's giving away his wealth... I want you to know that this is not Zacchaeus earning his salvation. We know we can't earn our salvation with God. I think what we're seeing there is Zacchaeus is responding to the fact that the, that the order of his loves 
have changed. Where at one point not too long ago, wealth was in the top seat, uh, top part of top seat in the orders of his love. Now Jesus has taken that spot. And so his life begins to reflect this new reality. So where does the Messiah find you today? How we respond to him has a lot to do with how aligned the ping pong ball of our life is to the bowling ball of his. So what direction are you headed? We're going to enter a time of reflection here. We're going to have some time of just instrumental music and then a song where you can continue to reflect. And I'm going to walk through four questions here for you to reflect on in that time. And if there's anything you want to discuss after service, I'll be up here. We also will have people back in the encounter room. And you don't have to wait till the end of service. If there's something that you'd like to talk through or pray through with somebody, you can go back at any time over the next 10 minutes. We'll have someone back there who wants to talk with you and pray with you. And so the four questions, depending on where you're at on your journey, is this. The first one, maybe you are faithfully walking with God. And your call is simply to bear witness to the stories of his power and character in your life. Use this time to reflect on those stories and who the Spirit might be calling you to share those stories with. Some of you, though, maybe don't feel like your life is in complete alignment with his. Maybe you're a little bit off course. And so you're in need of some redirection from the Savior. For you, I would, say, I would ask you to consider how might the affections of your heart or the actions of your life be better aligned with the mission of Christ? You know, Jesus makes it clear why he came and where he's headed. In the home of Zacchaeus, he corrects the false Messiah narrative. He makes it clear that he is not a king who is coming to begin an earthly political reign but that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the heart of our Savior. The reason that his face is set like a flint on Jerusalem is because that's where the saving is going to happen. It's going to happen on the cross. And it also helps us understand why he stops for Zacchaeus. Up in the tree was someone who was lost, one of his lost sheep. How could he not stop? As I was considering questions like this 15 years ago, after my friend's death, the Lord met me powerfully one night in a time of prayer. And I don't recall if it was in response to something I read or something I heard, but I remember being presented with a clear choice. Would I be all in for myself as I had been, or would I be all in for Christ? And he also made it clear that this idea that we can stay somewhere in the middle is a complete lie. Now, I, in that moment, did choose Christ. I stayed on the same course. I still graduated as an engineer. I still struggle at times to find my identity in my achievement, but I will tell you that in that moment, my loves were reordered. And what followed, to be honest with you, were the five most difficult years of my life. But instead of leaving that time worn out and cynical, I could tell you story upon story of God's faithfulness and power. Another question you could ask is, is there anyone in my life who I've put in a box that I believe is outside the reach of the Savior? You know, we don't have time today to talk about how often the crowd gets it wrong. 
but they got who the Messiah was wrong. They got who Zacchaeus was wrong. They didn't understand the worth of Zacchaeus in his eyes. And sometimes the way that we view others, we join the crowd. And so if there's someone in your life who you have grown to believe is outside the reach of the Savior, I would ask you to spend this time to repent for your unbelief in the power of our Savior. And then pray that that the Messiah would come and do a work in that person's life so that you could have a new testimony of his power and his character. Lastly, some of you here this morning are still up in the tree. Look, I know some of you are here just because your parents brought you. You had to come. Some of you are here because this is where your friends are at. Or maybe you were just driving by. Now, like Zacchaeus, remember, Zacchaeus did not expect to meet Jesus. But just because Zacchaeus didn't expect to meet Jesus does not mean that Jesus was not on his way to meet him. But no, when he reaches your tree, when you feel his call on your heart, you're going to have to make a choice. And there's two options. You can choose to remain in the tree and allow your life to continue to be defined by the things you have done, by the people you have hurt, by the struggles that you struggle with even today. Or you can choose to come down. You can choose to allow your life to be defined, not by your story, but by his. And allow your life to become a testimony of how he can turn pain and suffering into his glory and grace. We know from our story that Zacchaeus came down immediately. And within one week, he would be able to see the extent to which the Savior was willing to go to save him because within one week, he'd be on a cross. In that moment, he would take all the sins of the true sons and daughters of Abraham on himself. He won't disappoint. So consider these things this morning as we reflect. Heavenly Father, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set my 
set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. we continue to reflect on those questions we just want to sing this song and you can remain seated as we reflect on the lyrics on God's love for us the song the imagery in it describes it as a hurricane and us being a tree this is the bowling ball meeting the ping pong ball this is God's love redirecting our course and our loves and our priorities so again if you would like to pray with someone in the encounter room to hearing these last two songs, we'd love to invite you to do that, just to embrace how God is moving right now.
he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Let's stand together. Let's sing in response to that incredible love.
this is the charge that you have given us to go out and sing and scream hallelujah praise Yahweh God I pray that your church your people would be filled with your spirit that they would proclaim the story of what you have done in the scriptures and in our lives God give us the ability to preach that to the ends of the earth we pray this in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Well, church, be encouraged, be filled with the Spirit as you go out this week to live that out, to proclaim that story. We'll see you next week for Palm Sunday. Thanks for worshiping with us. You're dismissed.